Today's show is all about civil engineering. What is a civil engineer, you asked? And what is the difference, I asked, between a civil engineer and a washing machine engineer? Is it simply that civil engineers wear suits? Or are we using the same word for all sorts of different profession? Anyway, we're going to find out what a civil engineer does. And we'll hear how it plays a role in building projects such as the Westminster Underground Station right next door to Big Ben and tunnels are being built underneath it. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. You'll also hear how engineers are involved in the biggest engineering project in Europe right now, which is the creation of a railway line running right across London underground. This railway line called Crossrail runs tunnels under thousands of buildings and civil engineers are going to be needed to ensure that not one of them develops a little crack in the wall. Engineering might be one of those areas of science that we really didn't learn about at school. Firstly, where does engineering fit into the set that we call chemistry, physics, biology, maths? I'm going to wager that there's a world of people who have escaped knowing the answer. In this science show then, I got to speak with the head of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Cambridge. He is Professor Robert Mayer, and from this recorded interview alone, you're going to hear about his fabulous track record. It is quite a long interview, but for sure, by the end of it, you will have found out pretty much what civil engineering has to offer. Well, I'm head of civil engineering here in the Cambridge Engineering Department. Civil engineering encompasses a very wide range of things. I think people tend to think civil engineering, oh, that means bridges and tunnels and things. It's true bridges and tunnels are included in civil engineering, but it also involves a great deal more. We have very strong environmental engineering aspects because much of what is needed to fix this planet in terms of reducing carbon, having sustainable solutions, are really down to civil engineers. So so there are really big new rethinking is going on about our future cities, our future environment. How will the next few generations be existing in urban areas? And it's very striking that that in the world, the percentage of the population that live in urban areas is increasing very rapidly. So back in perhaps 30 or 40 years ago, probably nearer a third of the world's population lived in cities. The future predictions, only a matter of 10 or 20 years ahead, are that two-thirds of the world's population will live in cities. And that's, of course, two-thirds of a much bigger figure. We're talking about perhaps nine billion people in the world, of which six billion people will be living in cities. And so there is a real world crisis, in a sense, of urbanisation. How are we going to actually create these city environments which will be tolerable and sustainable to live in? And that's very much in the realm of the civil engineer. When you're talking about cities, you're probably connecting with the Crossrail project, which is a railway going across London? Yes, the Crossrail project is a, is a fantastic new project, very, very forward-thinking, in that it's uh, an underground railway 
crossing from the east to west of London, the size of a railway. It's much bigger than the London Underground. The Crossrail Project is an example of what the world will have to be doing more and more of to create these intensely urban environments. We're going to have to go underground more and more. And Crossrail is a very interesting example. Much, much bigger diameter tunnels. The station tunnels for Crossrail are typically about 11 metres in diameter, which is, which is very large, much larger than the, than the London Underground tunnels. And the ways in which they've been constructed are different and novel, using well-tried techniques, but nevertheless there's quite a lot of novelty and innovation in how they're being constructed. Um, they're not circular in shape, they're elliptical in shape, and, and the elliptical shape is because it's actually a better and more economic use of space. So if you think about a, a circular tunnel, mm-hmm. the top of it, is kind of wasted in a sense. You're using the, the space within it for the platform and the train, but the, but the bit at the top is rather unnecessary. So you can have a, a rather flatter ellipse. You can create a, a better design tunnel where you're getting more for your space, so to speak. But the real challenge of Crossrail is actually the fact that we're creating these very big tunnels right under central London, under thousands of buildings. And when you create a tunnel in soil, there will be movement. That's an inevitable part of the physics. If you're actually taking out soil and creating a hole, however advanced the technique that you're using to do that, the ground will actually deform towards the hole, and that will result in settlement occurring at the ground surface. And the real science behind what we do is to predict that. And so we have very complex systems for doing boreholes. There were hundreds of boreholes done all the way across London on the route of Crossrail, and samples of soil were taken from considerable depths going down to perhaps 50, 60 metres below the ground surface. And those samples are very special because they're pretty much what we call undisturbed. In other words, the drilling techniques are refined to such a point that you're extracting a sample of clay, a cylindrical sample, typically about 100 millimetres in diameter and about 200 millimetres in height. And that's taken to laboratory and put into a special testing machine and very careful stress-strain measurements are made on that clay sample, from which we then feed that into computer programs that that model the behaviour of that clay. And it's quite complicated. It's not a, a linear elastic material like steel or like concrete it's very non-linear in other words it, it goes plastic very easily and we use that mathematical relationship to predict how much movements will take place when these very large tunnels are being excavated and those movements will cause settlements and we can predict how much the buildings will be subjected to settlement and whether or not the buildings will be damaged which is critically important that's very much what civil engineering is all about the design process is actually to ensure that whatever is being done will not have an adverse effect on the environment and on the the general public. The thing that chimed with me was this tunnelling under Big Ben. Yes. If you pardon that pun. Yes. Presumably when they started to build Big Ben, somebody said, well, you, you need to go down a metre to get a good footing, put in some hardcore and then build up from there. And now you're going way underneath that. That's correct, that's correct. Personally, for me, the biggest technical challenge 
in engineering practice that I've ever had. And that was before I came to Cambridge as a professor. So at that time, I was running a company that I started with two friends, which specialised in geotechnical engineering. Okay. And geotechnical engineering is, is what I've really been describing. It's the, it's the application of the science of how soils and rocks behave when you do things to them. You load them with foundations or you unload them with excavations like tunnels. But essentially that's what geotechnical engineering is about. Big Ben, you're completely right. The Victorian engineers were pretty brave in the 1860s when they built the Houses of Parliament after they'd been burnt down. On the site of Big Ben, they simply, exactly as you say, they dug a hole. We're very close to the River Thames there. And they went on digging down until the water was coming in too much and they stopped and they just chucked in exactly as you described hardcore sort of rubble and, and, and stones, and then some mass concrete, some rather primitive in those days, not reinforced concrete as we know today, but just concrete without reinforcement in. And that was it. That was the foundation for Big Ben. And in today's terms, the, the pressure on that foundation from Big Ben is very, very much higher than would be used by modern engineering. So it's, it was a brave thing to do. And in fact, Big Ben... We know this because we have very accurate records. Big Ben is, in fact, leaning, not perceptibly to the naked eye, but it is when you make measurements. Already it is leaning to the north, so that when the Jubilee Line Extension Project, which was a big London Underground project in the 1990s, when that was being initiated, that involved a completely new station, Westminster Station, that many people will know, right opposite Big Ben. A, a very fancy new yeah, nice. uh, and very exciting station which I was very closely involved with acting on behalf of London Underground and that station involved essentially constructing a very deep hole the deepest in, in London ever down to a depth of about 40 metres and constructing the station within that and Big Ben was only 35 metres away from the edge of that hole and you can sort of imagine just by almost by simple drawing a 45-degree line from the bottom of the, of the hole upwards, that the movements that would be caused to the ground by creating that very large hole mm-hmm. would inevitably affect Big Ben and would cause Big Ben to move further in the direction north, in the direction towards that new station, so that we had a real challenge as to how to protect Big Ben from moving by an unacceptable amount. And to compound the problem between the new station and Big Ben in Bridge Street, which is the street running directly outside the station, below that street would be two new station platform tunnels for the Jubilee Line extension. So the combination of the deep hole and the new tunnels would undoubtedly have caused Big Ben to move unacceptably. Uh, And therefore we created a new process which we'd already experimented with a few years earlier in London. And the process we developed was called compensation grouting, which involves some very, very intricate science of predicting how much Big Ben would move if nothing was done, and then saying, okay, before we do any construction, we're going to create a a shaft in the middle of Bridge Street some distance from Big Ben, it's a vertical hull, and it's quite large in diameter, about six metres in diameter. From that shaft, at a depth of about 
20 metres below ground, horizontal tubes were drilled into the ground in a fan spreading right under the foundations of Big Ben. So between the tunnels, which were going to be deeper, and the foundations of Big Ben, these fan of steel tubes were placed in the ground before any excavation took place. And those tubes are very special because they have holes in them every 500 millimetres, every half metre. And each hole is covered with a very tight rubber sleeve, a bit like a hockey stick handle or a cricket bat handle. And the essence of the process is, is that calculations are done as to how much movement might be taking place due to the excavation of the station or the tunnel on a particular, perhaps, um, 24 hours. And then, and then uh, in advance of that, a plan would be made to inject cement grout, liquid cement, into any one of these many, many holes through these steel tubes to compensate for the movements. So the movements that are taking place at depth caused by the tunnelling and the deep excavation are intercepted by the injection of the cement into the ground to prevent the movement from getting up to the foundations of Big Ben. So over a period of several years, this process was being done, and it was very exciting for the engineers. Every morning there'd be a meeting, there'd be lots and lots of instruments that were on Big Ben that were recording the tilt of Big Ben. The readings would be transmitted to the computers of the engineers and there would be plots being made. And so every morning there'd be a meeting, what's happened to Big Ben in the last 24 hours? What is the tunnelling that's being planned over the next 24 hours? How much movement might that tunnelling cause? How much grout will need to be injected to compensate for that? And so it was a feedback, iterative process comparing all the time with quite complicated computer predictions. And the, the upshot of all that was that we were able to protect Big Ben very successfully. And it did not move more than very small amounts, and everyone was very pleased with the result. Can you give me a picture of what one does? I'm not imagining that you're the person at the bench. As a younger engineer, I was. OK. And, and that was great fun, actually, because we worked very closely with geologists... So it's quite sort of interdisciplinary in that sense. We, we have engineers who are, are trained. Their university degree would be in the application of principles of mechanics and structures and, and, and how things behave, how steel and concrete behave, and indeed how soil behaves. We, ha- we have a very strong department here in Cambridge, which is one of the leading ones in the world, about how you can characterise the way soil behaves if you put loads onto it oil platform foundations or building foundations or excavating a tunnel through it, all of that requires some sort of knowledge of how the soil behaves. So the engineers will be trained in all the scientific principles needed to be able to do the calculations and to, and to make judgments. And the geologists will be coming from a different direction. They will be very well-versed in the, the reason for the soil being there in the first place, it's long history, it could be millions of years that the soil was deposited there and what's happened to it since. And so the business of creating boreholes and taking samples will be a mixture of geologists and engineers together. Okay. So, yes, as a younger engineer, I was very much involved in actually examining the soil and, and specifying the laboratory tests and sometimes being present. These are very often now very high-quality commercial laboratories. 
visiting a laboratory, checking that the, the right tests have been done. So if you think back to measurements which you specify, what's your most useful measurement? Probably in terms of characterising the soil, I mean, there are lots and lots of different tests, but there's probably the, the single most important one is one we call the undrained shear strength. And undrained means that the soil doesn't have time to squeeze water out or to absorb any water. So you're taking the sample from the soil and you're shearing it immediately to see what its shear strength is. And that's probably the most important measurement of all because it immediately gives an image to any engineer around the world. If you say the undrained shear strength of the clay in London is typically 200 kilonewtons a square metre, kPa. The undrained shear strength of clay in Singapore is 20 kilonewtons a square metre, one-tenth of the strength of the clay in London. In other words, in Singapore, it's very, very soft and almost the consistency of toothpaste. So that one measurement immediately conveys to any engineer what they're dealing with in terms of squishy ground, Singapore, or much more solid ground, London. And it was a solid ground in London that the Victorian engineers latched onto. They very quickly realised, without knowing the science that we know today, that the clay beneath London, called London clay, is very strong. And, and therefore they made the first underground system in the world, the London Underground, which is 150 years old now. And they knew they could do that because the clay was so strong. You said that you're building tunnels which are oval. Well, my, my intuition says do it round because it's sort of an easier thing to make. Well, your intuition is right when it comes to a tunnelling machine because the machine very often is a circular sort of cutting disc and that fits very well with a circular shape. But we now have new technology. If the ground is strong enough, and I've already described the London situation where it is strong enough to be able to do this, you can actually cut any shape you like with a underground with a large hydraulic machine. And you can cut an elliptical shape just as easily as a circular one. We have quite sophisticated laser technology that can effectively give the operator the controls needed to actually be cutting the correct elliptical shape. So your intuition is right about a machine that might be creating a hole using a sort of rotating wheel. Then circular is the only sensible answer. But once you're into different sorts of technologies, it's not difficult to do an elliptical shape. Okay. Structural engineers, civil engineer, different engineers. Do you all know the same stuff? I think the answer broadly is yes, but there is a terminology problem in this country, and you're absolutely right to highlight that. It is a, a constant source of irritation <laughs> to me and to many of my colleagues in the engineering world that if one rings up about a, a faulty dishwasher, then the voice at the other end of the phone may well say, we'll send an engineer. In truth, the person who comes to fix the problem of the dishwasher is a very skilled person, there's no question, but they're not a trained engineer in the real sense of the word. They may be a skilled technician and know a lot about dishwashers. But engineering is much wider than that. And, and I think we have a sort of terminology problem there. But the structural engineer who might advise on whether or not a building needs to be underpinned mm-hmm. is almost certainly a qualified chartered engineer and, yeah. and will have a, an engineering qualification and will know what he or she are talking about in terms of structure of the building. 
all of that is embraced within civil engineering. So I have colleagues here, right. here in the engineering department who are structural engineering experts, who know a lot about suspension bridges or about reinforced concrete or about the use of glass facades as, as a structural material. So a structural engineer is part of civil engineering. Okay. So a big civil engineering project like Crossrail will employ lots of structural engineers, lots of geotechnical engineers, lots of environmental engineers. That's another point I was going to make, that, that the environment is ever of increasing importance. And so we attract a lot of young people into our course at Cambridge, into civil engineering, because civil engineering embraces environmental engineering. We get a lot more women coming into civil engineering who are interested in creating solutions to environmental problems. Okay. One of our big challenges is influencing government, government in, in general, about the, the really pressing issues facing our nation. And we need to be a thriving economy. We need to have a very strong manufacturing base. We need to have an infrastructure that is fit for the 21st century for a leading economy. And so there are some really important engineering issues to, to address. And we have all of us who've travelled on the continent will see what a very efficient railway system the Germans have, the yeah. Dutch have, yeah. the French have, the Italians have. And there's examples there. And, and there, are, there are quite important issues to be addressing about our own infrastructure, which was, in Victorian times, second to none. We led the world in our infrastructure. We had the first canals, we had the first tunnels, all kinds of engineering that we were so good at. Now, we're still very good at engineering, but we have a lot of persuasion to do to convince the government to prioritise certain kinds of infrastructure. Now, I know that's not easy in difficult financial times, but only very recently we've seen the, the rather shocking phenomenon of the railway at Dawlish, just after Exeter on the way to Cornwall, swinging in the wind because the very high levels of waves and rainfall and flooding washed away the railway. Now, the rest of the world were quite incredulous. This could happen in what is regarded as one of the world's top economies. So we have a lot of engineering, and both scientists and engineers, and, and frankly, they're not different. I think that's another point to make. Engineering is simply the application of science to create things. So it's very often misunderstood as being somehow something um, deeply more mechanical. It's not necessarily the case. So it's engineers who are devising the World Wide Web. Tim Berners-Lee won the Queen's Prize for Engineering, which is a worldwide um, prize equivalent to the Nobel Prize. And he is an engineer, and he created the World Wide Web. So engineering embraces computer scientists, it embraces mathematicians, it embraces physicists, it embraces all sorts of disciplines. It's all about the application of all those scientific disciplines to create things. I imagine that, shall we say, the cross-rail project requires teams, teams of people. people. Hun hundreds. Hundreds, uh, I, I would say more than hundreds, uh, thousands of people are involved. So there are, there are lots and lots of teams doing different... It, that's another very exciting part of engineering from my own experience. I mean, I spent 27 years in industry before I came to Cambridge as a professor. And, and, and there were very exciting times because we were always dealing with, with teams of, you know, there were, there were groups of us doing things. You know, it's not a solitary 
profession by any means. You're working in teams, you've each got tasks, you've each got specialities, you're interacting with each other a lot. And certainly the Crossrail design process involved many, many hundreds of engineers of many different sorts of disciplines, of all ages, and now it's under construction. The actual project, when you visit them on the site in London, there are hundreds and hundreds of of people having a very interesting, exciting time. And and many of our students are involved there as well, making measurements, interacting with with the people on the site, it's, it's an exciting thing to be It's in. a gift of a classroom. Yes, it? it's a living... Crossrail is a living laboratory for us. It's actually, it's actually embodying new things happening, new predictions being made, new scientific calculations being, being undertaken, and then measurements being made to compare with those predictions, those calculations, to refine those calculations. And we're putting special new fibre-optic devices in to measure the response of the ground to tunnelling. We're using wireless technology much more, so we're putting little devices in the tunnels and on um, foundations and so on to tell us what's happening to those tunnels and foundations, but without wires, so using, using a lot of very smart new technology. Are we happy with engineering in the sense that it's... Is, is it a tarnished name as far as women are concerned, as far as girls coming in? No, I would say not. I mean, I, I think it's up to engineers and the engineering professions to publicise the exciting things they do, to make it very clear to school children, boys and girls, contemplating scientific subjects, that if they really want to use their science in a, in a very interesting and exciting way, then engineering is a great route for them to do that. I think we just have to continue to sell that message. Um, school teachers, it has to be said, often are rather badly informed and think that their best scientists, boys and girls, should not go near engineering because that somehow is some sort of lower grade. That simply isn't correct at all. Um, So so the science that lies behind engineering is the very highest grade science and and it's simply a, a different view as to what you're doing with the science rather than pursuing the pure science in its own right. You're actually saying, okay, how are we going to use these scientific principles to innovate, to create new things, to manufacture new things, to build new things? That's a perfect explanation. Thank you very much. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>